family is all that lives in sight and sound, touch and taste. Live, come on, be human and give, give, give. <laughs> the Woodstock Roundtable welcomes you to be a part of being human. Aho! Greetings, everyone. Welcome to the Woodstock Roundtable. Doug Grunthe, your host, looking forward to two hours of improvisational conversation. Special guest who will talk about food, jazz from the Sultan of Sonic Soul, insights from our favorite street philosopher, and who knows what else. Well, we are in the midst of climate change. We're in the, still in the midst of a pandemic. So what is our solution? We turn to Woodstock Roundtable's favorite book on the brain, The Master and His Emissary, The Divided Brain and the Making of the Western World. And how does that connect with Woodstock Roundtable's favorite cinematic experience, 2001 A Space Odyssey? It showed up on Turner Classic Movies last night. Once again, I had to watch at least part of it. It's a requirement. We'll tell you why. Uh, something was said in Congress for the first time last week. We can't even say it on the radio. Fun and games in Congress. We'll talk about one of our favorite contemporary politicians. We don't talk a lot about politics here, but we'll make an exception. And say hello to your amygdala because... It's definitely saying hello to you. Joining me will be our co-host on Air Radio Weekend Warrior here at Radio Woodstock, Ron Van Warmer, the Sultan of Sonic Soul, Gus Mancini, street philosopher Patrick Carlin, and Chef Oz from Masa Midtown, a world-class Turkish chef. Hang out with us here at the Woodstock Roundtable. Open the pod bay doors, Hal. And that's the job of Ron Van Warmer, who lost his brain today. Yeah, I did. I lost my brain. I misplaced my phone, which is my brain. It has everything. It's got my phone numbers, my dates, my calendar. Oh, it's got a lot more than that, my friend. It's got your neurons. It's got, I mean, on, on a certain <laughs> level. It's, you know, the great Marshall McLuhan. Uh, one of our mentors here on the Woodstock Roundtable, a great communications theorist who provided some puzzling and challenging insights during the 60s and early 70s, you know, made the statement, which is very obvious once you hear it, but no one had really made it before, which is that all of our major technologies that humans have invented are extensions of our bodies, starting with the wheel, extension mm -hmm. of our foot, right. extension of our feet, right? And then um, clothes, or extension of our skin. Microscope and telescope, as well as the book, the printing extensions of our eyes. Mm -hmm. Records, radio, extension of our ears. Interestingly, he pointed out, this is where it got a little puzzling, that electronic technology, starting with the telegraph, working right up through the TV, which was the highest level technology during McLuhan's age, mm -hmm. 
are extensions of our nervous system. Oh. We'll get to that in a second. But then he anticipated the personal computer revolution. He died, I believe, in the mid to late 70s, maybe 1980. Um, but he saw that coming, and he pointed out that this would be the extension of our brains. Yeah. Not in just some theoretical academic way, but in real terms. Yeah. Um, it has changed the way I think. Well, good. Um, we all need to change the way we yeah. think constantly <laughs> to deal with with reality. Yeah. And on, as we've talked about, our educational system, based on a 19th century German model, which is good for assembly line factories, but not for the age of quantum leaps. Yeah. And climate change, a lousy phrase, because it sounds too gentle. Climate change. It sounds like, oh, that's that's nice. Yeah. That's sweet. A little climate change. It's going to get warmer up here. How, how bad is that? Well, before we dive into our favorite book and our favorite movie, uh, it, yeah, article in today's Sunday Times. It's kind of interesting. It's from the, uh, the Brooklyn Botanical Gardens. Uh-huh. Great resource. And uh, among the insights there is the fact that uh, the, the gentleman writing it from the from the Botanical Gardens uh, realized um, recently that uh, one of the people working there had forgotten to cover one of the fig trees in burlap. Uh-huh. Um, and usually that means the fig tree will die over the winter because of the freeze, but it didn't. Huh. Because it was the second warmest winter on record in New York City, which is not a blip on the screen, but a long-term trend of global warming. And so as a result, he pointed out now, you will see hemlocks and dogwoods in New York City. Mm. Those are southern trees. Yeah. We planted some um, annuals last year in our garden, and many of them are back. <laughs> Wait, that's not <laughs> supposed to happen. <laughs> they became perennials on they, their own. They have, yeah. So, uh, uh, you know, and again, just part change, 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 and change, which has always been true. Listen. Look up Heraclitus, one of our favorite pre-Socratic philosophers. When did he live? I'm going to guess he was somewhere around 6th century B.C., 5th century B.C., a while back. Um, as the Greeks were developing uh, Western philosophy, much to our advantage. Heraclitus, one of his, uh, most of what he wrote did not survive, so we just have bits and pieces. But one of his insights was you can never step in the same river again, which is kind of brilliant. Uh, right. Because the brain first says, well, of course we can. I do it all the time. I can step in the same river again. But that misses the point of what he was saying. You're, you're not stepping into the same river. How many trillions of molecules have shifted every time you step in? So um, the point being that to deal with life, you, we have to deal with change. How are we learning that now? At any rate, uh, uh, you can't find Heraclitus? Her Heraclitus. Heraclitus. Um, well, your brain is missing. It's 475 BC. 475 BC. Okay. Yeah. A while back. A bit. One of the great pre-Socratic. So at any rate, um, uh, 
climate change a little gentle. <clears throat> yeah. How about cataclysmic change? And we're already <laughs> seeing we're seeing the differences because I'll never forget when Katrina hit and they were analyzing it. They said um, Katrina was a was a uh, level five. What's the word? Um, not level five. Um, um, uh, category five right. hurricane. Good one. Okay. Which is <laughs> which is the highest you can get. Most destructive. In fact, as destructive as a level four uh, hurricane is. Um, not as it, that if it w- if it was uh, a level four, you wouldn't have had nearly the damage right that you had. And the reason it was Category 5 is because the water of the Gulf of Mexico temperature annually was, had gone up almost a degree over a, a period of decades. And that one degree warmer temperature was the difference, that little one degree yeah. was a difference between New Orleans having some significant issues versus almost being totally destroyed yeah so you know it's it's like some kind of climatic fulcrum you know a small change here can create huge results they're already so when we read this is cognitive dissonance one of my favorite phenomena of the human brain when we hear something read something learn something come in come in contact with a fact that is, we don't want to deal with. It's uh-huh. too much for us to even think about. <laughs> Our brain protects us uh-huh. by just jangling the neurons so we don't even hear it. Right. We might hear the words, but we don't allow the meaning to actually work through our brain as a protection. Uh-huh. Well, cognitive dissonance. Well, say hello to your amygdala because <laughs> the whole world is going through cognitive dissonance with this pandemic. The world has never shut down before. No. The most modern countries literally shut down. Now we're trying to figure out how to reopen. So, <laughs> not doing a very good job. Well, <clears throat> no experience. Right. Uh, didn't think it through. Nope. No exit strategy. Absolutely not. So, um, when we say climate, we say so when you when you read something like I did this morning in this article in the that. Um, by the year 2080, near, uh, much of New York, uh, Manhattan might be underwater. Yeah. You go, come on, that's 60 years from now. <laughs> no sweat. We ain't going to be, baby, we're not going to be around. That's right. As far as we know. Yeah, well, yeah. Uh, but if, you don't have, we don't have to wait 60 years for cat. We're already seeing it. Just ask New Orleans, the people of yeah. New Orleans. Um, and and it's all about change. And this pandemic is just the tip of the iceberg of the changes that we're going through. We've talked about this. The story of the 21st century is going to be the integration of human intelligence and computer intelligence and how those two can deal with nature's intelligence. And nature's intelligence is about balance. Nature has a lot more experience than we do, been around a lot longer than we mm-hmm. have. We're actually part of it. Right. Although we try to dominate it, it we're part of it, and believe me, it dominates us. Uh, it seeks balance. 
it's not prejudiced. It's just what it does. Mm-hmm. And uh, we're not a balanced species. No. Too many of us, we're a little too greedy. We're taking too much out of the earth. We're putting too much crap into the air. And we're seeing it. Maybe there'll be a green revolution in time. But time is ticking away. And the only, I mean, I think rational way to even think that there can be a solution if the species is going to survive is some integration between our intelligence and this exponentially growing computer intelligence. Maybe we'll work that out. Maybe. Um, it's not a question of if, it's a question of when we are going to be, when we are going to become a species, possibly a different species, um, that is part human, part computer. Um, already, it's not pervasive, but already they have computer chips that they've implanted in the brains of uh, epilepsy, people with severe epilepsy that helps calm down their epilepsy. Right. Um, so it's, it's going to be sooner rather than later that there are going to be chips available that can exponentially increase a person's IQ. Yeah. Um, defend against things like cancer and, and, and devastating diseases. So, you know, this is, on the, this is here and on the horizon, and it's changing the way our brains work already. The fact that we get most of our information from a digital screen rather than the printed page is changing the wiring of the human brain in ways that might be worth studying. Yeah. Um, instead of just bitching about it. <laughs> Speaking of bitching about it. Oh, yeah. You can say that part. I, I'm sorry. The older I get, the less I pay attention to politics because the less I realize it's at the forefront of any significant change. Politics at its, at its best grudgingly accepts change that's already happened Yes. And helps it along. Okay. At its best, it's late <laughs> in the game. At its worst, all it does is hold up its hand and say, stop the parade. We don't want this. Uh-huh. Um, but, um, so, w- so when we talk about politics, we like it to be more than politics. But, um, uh, and, and, and just even her name is so interesting. <laughs> right? Alexandria... Ocasio-Cortez. That's a beautiful sounding name, right? Yeah. And I was thinking as I'm coming in today, in the 19th century, um, noted intellectuals and literary folks and or, all had three names. Ralph Waldo Emerson. Yeah. Right? One of the great American intellects of the 19th century. Um Henry David Thoreau. It's got <laughs> kind of a nice flow to it, the three names, right? Uh-huh. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, but she's known as AOC. Here's what I find so interesting about that. Her full name, which is quite beautiful, as is a Henry David Thoreau, beautiful name. But those are literary kind of names. They're linear they spread out in a linear way, right? Uh-huh. We don't live in that age anymore. We live in the digital age. Yeah. And the digital age is more like a quantum leap than a linear flow. And I think one could make the point that while a lot of us baby boomers are bitching and moaning about 
Oh, these kids today, they're on the internet, or they're not remembering as much, and their memories are... Calm down. <laughs> Most of what we were told to remember was a bunch of BS anyway. And memorization is not the best way to learn. Um, using the integration of the two hemispheres of our brain are the best ways to learn, and they learn in different ways. The left hemisphere likes logic and sequence. Uh-huh. And that's the part that our educational system celebrates. But our right hemisphere, which is actually physiologically larger, and it's where information first enters our consciousness, doesn't understand the world that way. It understands the world in intuitive, creative leaps, in big pictures, rather than small details. Mm-hmm. We need both. But our culture, and Western culture in general, celebrates the left hemisphere, the logical, the, you know, break things down into its parts, which has its place. But AOC is a digital name. Yeah. And um, we're now in the digital age. But anyway, it, it, what happened is become very well known. I think it's both important and hysterically funny at the same time. <laughs> I don't think it was funny what... Uh, this Yahoo, what's his name? This, this Yoho. Yoho, I call him Yahoo, but anyway. Yahoo's good enough for me. What Representative Ted uh, Yoho said on the steps of the Capitol to her was discuss, you know, it was horrific and very common, uh-huh. misogynist language and effing bitch. But you see, we live in the new digital age where you have to assume somebody's going to have a smartphone that's either that's either recording the audio or and and or the video of everything that happens. You might want to assume that. Yeah, absolutely. And what she is so cool. What is she? Twenty four years old. Twenty eight years old or something. Yeah. She's a former bartender. She upset a, a politician who had everybody in his pocket. Yeah. I mean, this she's a force to be reckoned with. She represents the only reason I have any hope whatsoever of politics. Yeah. And I'm not talking just about what her politics are. I'm talking about how she performs her politics. She is fearless. Yeah. And she's smart. She is. And that's a combination that the people who don't like her are scared you know whatless about and should be. Yeah. And um, she stood up in Congress and... She said, I'm going to, because, you know, I'm sure she thought about, okay, do I really want to use the words he used into the microphone I'm using as I'm speaking in Congress? And she said, yeah, I'm going to do it. And I'm glad she did. Yeah. It had an effect. And by the way, we've talked about this before. Back, you know, our founding fathers, who we revere properly, but we think we're somehow polite. Thomas Jefferson and, 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 um, and John Adams hated each other's guts. Uh-huh. They were presidential combatants, and they called each other every foul name under the <laughs> in public. This is nothing new. So let's grow up. But I love the way she handled it. And um, listen, we've been fooled before. We thought Sandy Ho- after Sandy Hook, there would finally be did something done about gun violence. Right. There wasn't. Nope. But I'm really getting the sense that this time, 2020, the Black Lives Matter, I, I, I really, we, we have to wait to see, but I really have the instinct that the, the horrific killing of 
George Floyd back in March, one of many that have been going on for hundreds of years. This time it's different. I hope so. And this time the misogynist language is different. You know, Trump got away with it. Yeah. He got away with it. He got elected president after a misogynist video clip of him came out. Yeah. So that was a little distressing. But you don't, for the most part, get away with it anymore. Yeah. You don't. And already, uh, Congressman Yahoo here, I love this one, um, was forced off the uh, board of directors of a Christian organization. Duh. <laughs> oh, well. <laughs> what can you know, I say? Well, ho- excuse me. Ten years ago, that wouldn't have happened. Yeah, you're right. It would not have happened. But it probably would have. He would have gotten away with it. Yeah. Yeah. And um, it might not even have been reported. Might not even might not even been caught. I mean, LBJ said some of the most horrendous right. things ever, but it didn't get reported. Correct. So that's that. Now we're back into McLuhan territory. That's the technology. Mm-hmm. But technology is an extension of our, and especially all this is an extension of our brains, which are now out on the internet every day. Yeah. Um, that's that. Those computers are taking all of our thoughts. And feelings, and it's a, how does how does it do that? By following what we're doing on the web, um, because we're using search engines that remember what we do. We want them to remember what we do. They yeah. help us, you know. Um, but at any rate, I, I I just get the sense, and we've been wrong before, that while prejudice is not going to suddenly end. Um, I think the days of the good old boys networks where you could get away with misogynist actions, which I think are much more important than the language, um, and uh, ethnic slurs and racist behavior, a lot tougher to get away with it now. There Mm -hmm. has been some actually improved, there actually has been some shifts to the better. There have been. In our culture. For the the most part. I mean, there's still, you know, pockets of, misogyny and racism and it's tougher to get away with it but it is tougher to get away with yes you're right uh it's a good thing so yeah with our brains i say under siege our brains have always been under siege uh because we're not taught how to deal with change heraclitus gave us a tip you know in 454 bc or whatever (laughs) you cannot step in the same river twice so I thought when we come back from our, I can't believe we've already wasted 25 <laughs> minutes of good radio time. But when we come back from our first break, um, we'll dive back into our favorite book on the brain. All right. The Divided Brain and the Making of the Western World. Connect that with 2001 A Space Odyssey, which was on Turner Classic Movies last I, night. I, I caught a clip of it. I knew I wasn't going to be able to stay up for the whole thing. I've seen it only about 40 times. Uh-huh. But I really watched carefully the first 15 minutes because that was the part I usually didn't pay attention to. Oh. Okay, I get it. The apes, the, the monolith and the bone's going to go in the air and then we can start the story. Um, so uh, we'll talk a little bit about that and how it connects right. with the, the right hemisphere of the brain and who knows what else because we always leave room for surprises here at the Woodstock Roundtable. Well, that'll be the day when you say goodbye. Yes, that'll be the day when you Oh, 
So could you explain something to me? How come he sounds as good now as yeah. he did? How can he sound that good now, <laughs> Buddy Holly? It's pretty That was amazing, recorded in the late 50s. I know. It should sound tinny and thin. It should sound, oh, oldies. Yeah. Why does... Play that. You know it's a lie cause that'll be the day when I die. Fabulous guitar work. That's Buddy's guitar work. They got it right. And what was the technology they were using? I think the drummer was us tapping on a cigar box or something. <laughs> he was recording into a mic that today would be laughed at. Mm-hmm. And listen to this. I know. How is that happening? Well, be the day now, as I, my brain kicks in, it, it may have been digitally remastered to clean out some of the stuff. I get it, but you can't you can't alter the tenor of his voice. The the What's the word I'm looking for of his voice? The um, the temperature of his voice, the the feeling of his voice. Yeah, that's you. You can't change, and you, and and you can hear it as though it was today. When you say goodbye, yes, that'll be the day. When you make me cry, you say you leave. When the movie came out, was it, I think Gary Busey played. It was a pretty good, yeah, biopic. I think they call it. I was one of the idiots that kept yelling, don't get on the plane. You know, like, I actually yelled it out in the theater. Don't get on the damn plane. I know. All right. This is the Woodstock Roundtable. It is indeed. I'm Doug Grunther, and you're Ron Van Warmer. I am. And we're improvising here with a little thing. Let's get back to your losing your brain this morning, because I told the story <laughs> months ago, which I'll repeat, about I can never, re- I cannot remember swearing at myself as loudly and vilely as I did back in March in Florida when I couldn't find my cell phone Mm. on a golf course and thought it it dropped out of my bag and I'm going nuts. I can't even call my friends where I'm staying to tell them I'm going to be late. (laughs) I'm thinking about, you know, everything that's in the smartphone that I need. I'm literally, I was running around looking for my brain. Yeah. Of course, it was in my golf bag all the time. Of course. But um, I had the sound down because I didn't want to be disturbed while playing golf. And so when I, one of the things I did in my panic was I went to the, uh, went to some of the, the cart guys and I said, hey, you got a smartphone? Yeah, C- call my number. Maybe it's in my car under a seat somewhere. And they called. And I couldn't hear it anywhere. It was in my bag, but I had the sound down. <laughs> I know. I do that too. It's just... And it was in a, pocket of the golf bag that was just i just missed it and i literally went back i spent an hour driving around the golf course probably disturbing everybody on the damn course you know sorry sorry you know looking for my smartphone (laughs) trying to find my brain it's horrific it is it happened to you this morning you feel naked you suddenly it's like oh my god i i think oh it's a lot worse than feeling naked it's literally feeling you can't that you can't function. <laughs> it's tragic. I mean, you can, really, it's possible to function when you're naked. No, that's true. But it's almost impossible to function. Um, don't get me wrong. There's a lot of dysfunction when people are naked. I'm not saying there isn't. But <laughs> but it, but you can't function without your smartphone. That's true. It's it's crazy. How did we ever get along? I don't know. Obviously, we didn't. Apparently not, huh? Uh, obviously, we we didn't get along. I remember a couple of years ago losing my phone, and I was in a building, 
and I turned a corner, and there was a uh, some elevators and a payphone. <laughs> <laughs> a relic. I had no change. <laughs> <laughs> well, how do, where was your phone all the time? Uh, today? Yeah. It was under the seat of my car. Ah. Yeah. You can't call someone and say, could you call the number so I can hear it? <laughs> I know. <laughs> yeah. Well, good for you for finding because what <clears> happens <throat> is I, I expect a call from Ron at 6 a.m. in case... It hasn't happened, but in case I don't wake up, right? You wake me up. Yes, um, and we spend at least and that didn't happen. <laughs> we, we, we spend at least twenty seconds reviewing what we're going to do on the show. Exactly. And um, and when I didn't hear from you by six oh five, I get a little concerned. So I called you, got your uh-huh. voicemail. I, I didn't. I figured you were. You know, probably something like this had happened. Uh-huh. A little concerned because who knows? Yeah, I know. But uh, finally heard from you about 6.20. (laughs) I found it. It's here. Oh, my God. It's frightening. Oh, it is. You get this pit in your stomach, this feeling. So how come it's the 21st century, right? And we've got these amazing smartphones, which we know has more computer power exponentially than all the computers in Houston um, that landed the first men on the moon. That was like an Apple computer size, the size of an Apple original apple II, but um how come they don't have it so that something that that if it hasn't been touched in a while it goes or so, so, <laughs> there has to be some way uh-huh. of solving this problem of you can't find your smartphone you're not where because if you were near a public venue you go to somebody and say could you call the number and maybe mm-hmm. you'll hear it there's got to be something they can They've do. got these apps that to find your phone, but you need a phone to find the phone. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they got to come up with that one. At any rate, let's get into our brains. Okay. Right? Oh, yeah. So it was only since like the mid late 60s that we realized that we have uh, two hemispheres in our brain that speak very different languages. Uh-huh. We were never taught this in school. So I'll, go and I'll get up on my soapbox again. Is how come it's not reading, writing, arithmetic, and how our brains work. How can that not be a major continually part, continual part of our education from grade school right through junior high, high school, and college? How our brains work. Yeah, it's pretty well ignored. How can that not be required? Nobody wants to think about it. Too complicated? <laughs> well, the educational system isn't set up. This is, and this is not a political statement. This is a factual statement. Our educational system is not set up to encourage us to be free-thinking individuals. Right. Our educational system is set up to have us follow certain rules that the culture says are the ones we ought to follow. Yeah. And some of those rules make sense, and some of them make no damn sense. But uh, we're not taught to be independent thinkers. Oh, no. Um, so mm-hmm. that's why we're not taught about our brains. Society doesn't want independent thinkers. They want workers. Well, workers and owners. Yeah. You can be an owner, but then you've got to control your workers. Right. So we're still in assembly line mentality, mm-hmm. which is the anatomical way the left hemisphere of our brain thinks. It can break something down into its parts, understand how those parts work, it can it can use logic, but it must have a certain sequence. And here's the limitation of the left hemisphere of our brain, which is the one we 
focus on in our educational and cultural systems. The left hemisphere of the brain is incapable of dealing with uncertainty. The left hemisphere of our brain is incapable of not being territorial, which is the cause of all wars. Right. And and, and we can't criticize it. It's not wired to do it differently. Our right hemisphere is wired that way. But as our favorite author on the brain, Ian McGilchrist, points out in The Master and His Emissary, the right hemisphere is wired to hand off information. It gets the information first. It hands it off to the left hemisphere. It's wired to do that. The left hemisphere doesn't give it back because it's territorial. Uh-huh. So we, as the, we can call ourselves the CEO, the teacher, the Zen master of our brain, we have to understand that and consciously direct the left hemisphere to get the information back to the right hemisphere. Uh-huh. And you have to be taught how to do that. Or you can teach yourself by yeah, reading yeah. this book. <laughs> but here's a little bit, here's from page 210. of. And by the way, here's why we love Ian McIlchrist. Not only did he write this brilliant book, but it's not an accident that he was the guy that wrote it. Because here is a guy who not only is a brilliant neurologist, he's a, he's a PhD in literature. Ah. So he has, that requires the right hemisphere to be able to do both of those things. And anyway, here's what he writes. He's got Christ in his name. Hey. There, it doesn't matter. <laughs> a lot of pressure. Yeah. He says, my thesis is that the hemispheres have complementary but conflicting tasks to fulfill and need to maintain a high degree of mutual ignorance. Now, anatomically, as he points out, the corpus callosum is the structure that divides the two hemispheres of our brain. It's, a, it's cartilage. But our wiring, and we have, we have billions of neurons and trillions of synaptic connections, the wiring crosses through. Right. But the left hemisphere will not share the information back unless we direct it to. Hmm. He says, the corpus callosum and other subcortical structures uh, communicate between the hemispheres, have complementary but conflicting roles. They need to share information, but at the same time keep their worlds where that information is handled separate. At the beginning of the book, I referred to neurological evidence that the corpus callosum is largely inhibitory in function. That sounds competitive, but it might also be cooperative because cooperation requires difference, not more of the same. In other words, it's almost like a Zen koan. Nature evolved us for some reason to have two hemispheres which at our best work together, but we have to train our brains to do that because they also have to be separated because they don't understand each other. Hmm. They see the world with different lenses and they communicate to us in different li- in, in a different form of language. I wonder if we could evolve into a, a, a species that doesn't have that separation. Hmm. Well, computers, it's not a perfect analogy, but it's damn close. Computer intelligence is le- is primarily left hemisphere. Right, yes. Computers, and again, please don't tell us what computers can't do because every time they say they can't do something, within five years it does it. But that said, computers are set up, they, they work under algorithms, a set of rules. 
And while computers have displayed what appear to be intuitive behavior, they are at its best at taking huge amounts of data and analyzing them the mm. way our left hemisphere does. Computers are much less talented, if you will, at creating art, poetry. Right. It, it can do it. It's going to get better at it. But it, it doesn't, It at least at this point, doesn't appear to be able to make intuitive, creative leaps the way our right hemisphere of our brain can do. Interesting uh, story I heard recently. Uh, a man uh, produced an album of music that was all computer generated. Mm. All the songs. Uh, and I think they were like Irish folk songs or something. He released it, got really good reviews. It was revealed that it was a machine. And so the reviewers took the uh, music again and re-determined uh, then that it sounded, you know, mechanical. <laughs> right. And then it was revealed that the music that was given to them was actually real music created by humans. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, all right. That story reminds me of another, my favorite classical music story, which is so, I think, spiritually provocative that I'm actually starting to shake a little bit right now. And it's been an authenticated historically. Okay. It's a subjective question. What was the greatest piece of music ever written? Mm -hmm. Most powerful <clears throat> piece of music ever written. That's subjective. But when you ask classical music buffs, one of the pieces that always, you know, you think of Beethoven's Ninth, uh, Bach's, uh, uh, prelude, uh, uh, what is it, the Prelude and Fugue in D minor. But one that always comes up is Mozart's Requiem. Uh-huh which is so astonishingly powerful and beautiful. If you could pull that up, we'll play the beginning of it. It, it. You don't have to appreciate classical music to get it. Okay, so here's what's been authenticated. It was the last piece that Mozart wrote. He was dying at age 32 or three or whatever. And he was sick in bed and he was composing his Requiem, his last great monumental piece. I don't remember. It was not Salieri as they did in the movie. It was somebody else. But somebody was transcribing it for him at bedside. Mozart died before completing the Requiem. The person he was transcribing it to was a mid-level musician. Nobody who composed anything of note. And yet he finished the Requiem. And to this day... Experts in classical music cannot tell you which Mozart composed and which he finished. Huh. They cannot tell. In other words, this is my theory, there was some spiritual connect. The music came from a place so deep, so beyond even Mozart's brain, right? Some field of incredible aesthetic intelligence that this mediocre musician was able to finish. Wow what's considered one of the greatest pieces of music of all time. How do you explain that? Yeah. Here's a little bit. Mm -hmm. 
Cooper could have used that instead of the 2001 theme, which is from, which is uh, a tone poem by Richard Strauss, also yeah. for Sparks Arthur. But he, he chose that for the name, also, for that whole uh, other reason. But <clears throat> right to this day, they don't know where Mozart begins and ends in that piece. Huh? How could that even be? Something strange. That's yeah. right, hemisphere stuff, man. Yeah, Left definitely. hemisphere cannot deal with that one. <laughs> okay, let's go back to Mr. Uh, to Doctor McGilchrist here. The, the uh, master and his emissary, the divided brain in the making of the Western world. <clears throat> Roger Sperry himself, Roger Sperry was the surgeon who first discovered the two hemispheres talk different languages because um, he discovered that with epilepsy patients who were just ready to kill themselves because of these horrible seizures, that if you severed the corpus callosum, um, it would stop the epileptic. Hmm. seizures but then he realized that when he was talking to them depending upon when he was talking to them he was hearing very different visions of the world because sometimes the left hemisphere was talking sometimes the right they were no longer connected <laughs> that's how we first discovered this wow. stuff. it's almost that it's like out of alice in in in, in wonderland yeah so roger sperry himself who won a nobel prize for his work on split brains wrote quote both the left and right hemispheres may be conscious simultaneously in different even in mutually conflicting mental experiences that run along in parallel. Digest that sentence. Wow. wow. <laughs> Digest that sentence. Roger Sperry himself, who won a Nobel Prize for his work on split brains, wrote, quote, both the left and right hemispheres may be conscious simultaneously in different, even in mutually conflicting mental experiences that run along in parallel. Such an idea clearly raises questions about the self and personal identity. This complex, almost paradoxical function at the very core of the brain, forming a bridge that nonetheless separates the worlds of the hemispheres, he says, is actually captured quite well in the Upanishads, an ancient spiritual text, a Hindu text. Uh, that's why McGilchrist is great. He can make these connections because <laughs> he's got a right hemisphere that won't quit. At any rate, what does this have to do with 2001 A Space Odyssey? Well, of course, there's no objective interpretation. That's the way Kubrick and Clark wanted it. Uh -huh. But I think one can make a strong case that the reason we freaked out over the movie is because it was such a right hemisphere movie. One of the uh, expert abilities of the left hemisphere of our brain is verbal communication. Because think about it. How do we create verbally? We put words together in logical sequence. Right. That's the left hemisphere. That's how. Even back in 1968 when the movie was made, Kubrick was anticipating computer intelligence mimicking the left hemisphere of the human brain, which is why when Hal makes a mistake, it freaks out. Yeah. Because the left hemisphere can't deal with anything other than logic and certainty. It can't. It's not wired to, which is one reason how it goes berserk. It's interesting. I've, I find watching the film, and I've seen it a number of times, not as many as you have, but the when when they when they go into the pod, mm -hmm. that becomes the point where it's 
one of the most difficult movies for me to watch because of the tension, even knowing the end. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, it's such a cinematic feast because one of the reasons it stands out is that there's, there are foreign movies somewhat like this, but uh, for the most part, movies are the integration of verbal language and cinematic images. Not 2001. No. The dialogue's almost irrelevant. Yeah, well, it's perfectly <clears throat> stilted. And there's hardly any of it. And hardly any of it. Yeah. I mean, imagine that movie being made today. It would end in a gunfight. <laughs> 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 yeah. But uh, that's very good. But um, uh, one way of looking at that amazing transition is that is that when Poole, not Poole, when... Um, Who's the other guy? Poole's the one who, who how kills. Um, what, not Berman. What's his name? Oh, you've seen the movie more than um, I have. <laughs> senior moment. Um, when the astronaut goes, uh, is able to get back into the spaceship, Hal try to lock him out, and gets into, literally gets into Hal's brain and starts dissembling his brain. It's a really interesting scene. You, you, and you feel for Hal. Uh-huh. You feel for him, <clears throat> even though at that point he's a psychotic murderer. <laughs> See, to me, that's symbolic of the, let's not use destruction. That's a symbolic of a, sh of a shift that's about to happen from the left hemisphere of the brain, the computer part of our brain, to the pa only part of our brain that could even, that could not commit suicide after going through that mm. psychedelic transhuman portal into that strange ending sequence which ends with a transformation into a child yeah the left brain can't even it, it would probably the brain would probably shut down if it was if the left hemisphere was forced to try to deal with what was happening there it can't yeah so i see that what what how's the, the it was a cool scene and it was kind of an adventurous part. Oh, is, you know, is, how's this astronaut going to survive? <clears throat> well, he realizes the only way he's going to survive is to literally dewire, unwire, you know, whatever the right phrase, a verb is, uh, Hal's brain. Right. Which is the left hemisphere of his own brain, symbolically. <laughs> Just as you, when you lost your smartphone and I lost mine, we literally had lost our brains. Exactly. And went nuts. Yeah. Um. So he didn't know what was going to happen. In fact, he only hears for the first time at that point what the mission was. Right. And everything from that point on becomes a right hemisphere transformation, which is what the movie's about. Uh -huh. So one way to look at it. Um, but interesting, the most famous jump cut in movie history, that's not debated. No. Um, is when the ape, having discovered that a bone is also a tool, it's technology. It can be used to dig, and it can be used to kill off mm -hmm. another tribe that's to, to have territorial control over the water. Right. The, you know, the source of water. And in this kind of like primal scream, if you will, of I just, this discovery. He hurls the bone in the air and it turns into a space shuttle. Right. Now, interestingly, that's not the way Arthur C. Clarke wrote it. Oh, really? Cooper changed that. 
And he had a good reason. He had an interesting reason for doing it. The way that Arthur C. Clarke, the science fiction writer who worked with Kubrick on the script, wrote it, and then it appeared in the novel 2001. It's interesting. Usually you have a novel turned into a movie. This was the reverse. Welcome to Kubrick's world. This was a movie script that was turned into a novel by Arthur C. Clarke. The, it's not, the bone doesn't turn, doesn't, uh, there's not a quantum leap of thousands of hundreds of thousands of years from the discovery of the bone of technology to the discovery of space travel. It was a new, it was, it was an orbiting nuclear weapon. And when I'm forgetting his name, when the astronaut transforms into the star child and is clearly traveling back to earth at the end of the movie, Mm Mm-hmm. In the novel, Clark, the, the space saw was coming was going to um, uh, take apart the nuclear weapon because on Earth humans were about to have a nuclear war between Russia and the United States, then the Soviet Union, and the United States, right? And so the st- the transformation was to save humanity and dismantle the orbiting the nuclear weapon, right? I prefer Kubrick's ending because it's more mysterious and forces us to come up with our own explanation for what's going on. You might want to use your right hemisphere there. (laughs) Um, Yeah. But that's not the reason. But the reason he did it is because his previous movie, one of the all-time great movies, was a uh, dark comedy about nuclear... Which, which was uh, Dr. Strangelove. Yeah. And if you remember the I comedy Dr. Strangelove, it ends with a nuclear bomb going off, which is going to set off a nuclear war. That's how it ends. And Kubrick said, if, if I take Clark's idea, which is brilliant, which is the bone, which was used to not only dig, but to kill uh-huh. as a weapon, is now transformed into a nuclear weapon, it sort of says what have we learned over the last hundred thousand years mm, <laughs> right yeah um but he realized people would see it as his like some egotistical homage to to his previous uh-huh. movie dr strangelove so that's <laughs> one of the main reasons he took it out huh i like the i like his ending better uh-huh but um just an interesting it's more opinion. open yeah much more open much more right brain uh see the left brain that can't stand openness it can't stand right. multiple answers. It needs to have an answer. It needs certainty. Yeah. And that drive has brought us to a lot of great modern scientific technology. It's also, if we don't get more right brain, going to destroy us. Right. And that's why in today's world, 2001 would end in a gunfight. Because <laughs> it would have the certainty. Equivalent. It would have... It would well, but you could have said that back then because most movies back then ended in a gunfight. Well, that's true. And... Um, uh, but I, I, I take your point. <laughs> the point that's what makes this that's what makes this such a special movie. It's timeless, right? What it's dealing with is timeless on a very much level, even though it was very much of his age. Um, and the other part is, and this is where it gets mi- almost as mystical as Mozart not finishing his symphony and someone else finishing it. And we and we don't know where Mozart begins and ends. How could that be? Yeah. Um. You know. Uh, how he even got this movie made is amazing because it was so far over budget, number one. Number two, you could, you could see the studio heads, right, who were bottom line thugs, right, uh-huh. going, 
wait a minute, let me get this right. You're, sp- you're like tens of millions of dollars over budget and there's hardly any dialogue in the damn movie. <laughs> yeah. But he got it made. And we've had 50 plus years of technological, huge technological improvements, right? In cinematography. No one has improved upon the cinematic experience of that yeah. movie. The actual technology. Nobody's made a better space movie technologically than he made 50 years ago. How's that possible? I know. It still looks all uh, amazing. The problem is, while it's worth watching on TV, you lose a lot. It was not only meant to be seen on a big screen, but I told the story before. So I'll tell it again. After we get to Patrick. Okay, I think he's on the line. It's time for Patrick Carlin. Patrick, are you there? Paging Patrick. Why do we have three lines lit up? Patrick? I'm talking to ah, you. Ah, we got you. Our favorite street philosopher, yeah, Senor Patrick even with you for talking about him. See that? <laughs> there you yeah, go. Let me tell Al. you something. Uh, I want to get right to it because I don't care how my brain works. Take your radio down. I, turn your radio turn down. Turn hey, your hey, radio down. Is your radio up? Oh, I can turn it off. How's that, man? Turn it off. Uh, I got to tell you, my brain, as long as I turn the key on that engine and it kicks over, I'm a happy dude. (laughs) And it it has to jump when I punch it, getting through a yellow signal. But uh, other than that, that's all I ask of Mr. Brain. And my dude, my dude, uh, Mac, uh, as I call him, Marshall McLuhan. Ah. The medium is the message. That's what it is. That's what it is, man. So you got people that lived here for 10,000 years, and they're sending smoke signals. And you got these strangers who came on shore, the dregs of Europe, and they have <laughs> telegraph and gunpowder and a lot of things. It's going to be bad for the people who live there. That's how life is. 99% of the stuff that's been around in nature is gone. So don't worry about being extinct. When you quit evolving, that's when you quit being around you just go extinct and that's okay because it's all part of the trip like black holes make a whole lot of baby stars you know so let me tell you about mr brain some more uh mr brain wasn't kicking in for that dude yo-yo or whatever he is man uh this guy when I looked at him uh, saying his that he had a wife and daughters, and, and I was ready to see him burst into tears like Jimmy Swagger, uh, <laughs> you know, Jerry Lee Lewis's cousin, uh, the old evangelist who could get there and cry. And I don't plug my stuff, man, but this guy flashed me onto a part of my trip, Quinn's Barn Grill, which is available for $4.99. A man, bargain. On Kindle. Now, let me tell you something. And I want to tell a lot of people have already bought this book, so get back to it and check when the professor is working for the evangelist dude down in Oklahoma. And you'll see the scene. It's Elmer Gantry. It's been here forever, man. And this is a dude who says that he, uh, he was on food stamps when he was first married to the young bride. And now he doesn't want food stamps for anyone. So this is the worst kind of dude going, man. He forgets where he was. And uh, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's uh, they hang together. They got names like uh, caucuses and stuff. I don't know about all that. But here's a guy who made a basic mistake. He bothered a young chick from the Bronx. <laughs> 
get out of my way, Jack. Leave <laughs> the girl alone. So he chewed it with her, and she wailed on him, man, because that's how you do it in New York City. And I was calling the Ray O.C. I'm just like, he wouldn't last 10 minutes in the Bronx. Well, this is true. He would be devoured. <laughs> this guy would be devoured on the streets of New York. What, are you serious? I don't care if he's some kind of a big guy. Big guys get cut down to size real quick in New York City. <laughs> Come on, man. And, uh, and then that phony histrionics, I mean, Yo-Yo is just, uh, he's a part of a vanishing breed. So I dismiss them, and I welcome uh, the newcomers that are coming in because they're preaching. Basically, they're not preaching. They're practicing how they live. They go back to their neighborhoods. They know the people, and it's a wonderful, wonderful thing to watch. Then I want to thank the rest of you for the uh, Ron coming in with the uh, the thing about uh, Buddy Holly and all. That was oh. just beautiful. <laughs> uh, that was wonderful. But let me tell you something, man, about tough chicks. And I ain't going to use the F word. I'll just say blank. And uh, I'm over there one day. I'm selling cars out in Santa Monica, and i got to get an appraisal or I can't sell the new car. And my used car manager is getting drunk on martinis down at a bar. <laughs> and at that bar, the girl who was our best lady when me and Marlene got married, Patsy O'Reilly, is working as a barmaid. And Patsy grew up in my neighborhood. And this guy, that Al, that I'm going to get to come with me, is getting drunker. And he says, oh, just one more martini, and I'll go back with you, Pat. And I said, okay. And he looks back, and he sees Patsy there to take his order. And she got one of them little tags on that says Patsy. And he says, oh, Patsy, do you blank? And she looks at him very calm and says, no, as a matter of fact, I don't. But my brother does. Why don't you bring your mother and your sister around? <laughs> These are the kind of chicks from my neighborhood. I would love to see this guy get fresh with Maisie Flynn. She would take him apart, man. And these were good-looking chicks. Mm. These were good-looking chicks, but they were tough. They were gritty. And this guy chewed her off. Uh-huh. Anyway, I just look at that stuff and laugh because they're all just playing roles to me. It's all just my movie. <laughs> like I told the shrink on my first visit, he said, what's the most important thing in the universe? And I said, me. <laughs> and he said, what do you mean? I said, because when I check out, it's all over. I ain't seeing it no more, and it all goes away. And he said, that's wonderful. <laughs> I've always said the sun revolves around me. Yeah. Oh yeah, man. I'm the happy. I'm the. I'm. Listen, my my niece Kelly. My niece Kelly signs off to me when she sends little emails. The the center of the universe. This was sent from my whatever kind of phone or tripping thing she's doing from the center of the universe. And I always think to myself, thanks, Kelly, because I'm out on the edge of it, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And like some rock and roll guy said one time. I don't know who. I don't I don't care who the quotes are as long as they're good. And the dude said, If you ain't living on the edge, you're taking up too much room. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Look that I mean, one you, up. You, I like you that. I love some of these things. And uh See if you I can type that one in. Thing this morning, uh, like my 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 son Dennis knows I put together these sets of thirteen tunes and they're to jog old people's heads and stuff like this. It'll be a program someday when I get it with the way I want. Oh, there goes Packy on the blender. I'm going to step right, well, away. Well, listen, we get yeah, we're going to step, but yeah, <laughs> we're going to look that up. That fr let me get the phrase right. If you're not living on the edge, you're taking up too much room. 
Yeah. I love that. Oh, it's a wonderful trip. Oh, yeah, that's man. Great. You know, I'm, oh, look at me. I'm not, you know who I am. I love that kind of stuff. Tell them that next time you're busted for drunk driving and you're in the felony cell. That was a quote uh, from a, a guy named... People, uh, especially if you're one of these guys from Madison Avenue or well, something. Well, Patrick, as usual, we thank you for a bolt of insight. Give our best to the family. We'll, we'll catch you next week. All right, buddy? We're going to try and keep the world real because it's been good so far. All right. We count on you. Adios. Patrick <laughs> Carlin. Who, who said that quote? That was Jim Whitaker, the first American to summit Everest. Oh, wow. Yeah. Hey. That's rock and roll of a whole nother nature. That's a, yeah. guy, who, that's a guy who understands some heights. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Let's get the, take. We're going to take our break. Yeah, actually. let's take a break. And then we will plug in with the Sultan of Sonic Soul, our favorite jazz impresario, Gus Mancini. Also coming up uh, next hour, our special guest. She is a delightful person and an expert chef in Turkish cuisine. Chef Oz will join us. And we're going to open up the Woodstock Roundtable jukebox. Always some fun. So fasten your seatbelts and join us on the other side. I'm a loser. I'm a loser. And I'm not what I appear to be. Of all the love I have won or have lost There is one love I should never have crossed She was a girl in a million, my friend I should have known she would win in the end I'm a loser And I love someone who's near to me I'm a loser And I'm not what I appear to be Although I laugh and I act like a clown Beneath this mask I am wearing